You just heard Dr. Justin Patch sharing his insight on the ways in which populist ideals are articulated through music on the 2016 presidential campaign trail. Joining us today with Dr. Patch are Tracks on the Trail co-editor, Dr. James DeVille, professor of music at Carleton University in Ottawa, and Dr. Matthew Jordan, associate professor in the Department of Film, Video, and Media Studies at Penn State University. Dr. Jordan's work focuses on jazz and French cultural identity, American infotainment news shows, and music in the 2008 Barack Obama campaign. I am Dr. Dana Gorzelani-Mostak, Assistant Professor of Music at Georgia College and creator and co-editor of Tracks on the Trail. Thank you, everyone, for joining us via Skype today. I'd like to start the round of questions with one for Justin. Uh, do you really feel that candidates want people to listen? It seems like the kind of uh, populism that they're advocating, the identity they're constructing for the public, it's one that involves a superficial consumption of music through a combination of, let's say, singer-celebrity, song title, the chorus words, and maybe a catchy tune that's identified with the song. They're not really interested in the details of environmental degradation or American social decline that Neil Young gives us in the verses of Rockin' in the Free World, for example. And Trump seems to want himself to be associated with the powerful, ostensibly anti-socialist, yet ultimately polyvalent phrase of the chorus of that song. What do you think? All right, so there's a lot in there to unpack. So I'm going to start out with the, the listening part and sort of move through it. So as far as listening goes, I, I get the feeling that what we see with political campaigns and their use of music has a lot to do with the way that we all listen to music. And uh, John Seabrook in his fantastic book, The Song Machine Inside the Hit Factory, spends a lot of time talking about the hook. And the hook is what we think of as the chorus, right? And the chorus is usually what campaigns want to use. And of course, Rockin' in the Free World being a, an example, another example from this campaign is Donald Trump started out using, it's the end of the world as we know it, uh, in 2012, Hillary Clinton started using American Girl and Every Little Thing She Does is Magic, which have parts in the song that are a little bit, well, frankly, very sexual in nature that you probably don't want to be campaigning on. And then it, it, the, the, sort of the classic example is Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, which ends up in all sorts of places that it shouldn't. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the songwriting industry makes it so that the hook is put front and center it's what people are made to listen to. That's why it's called the hook. It's what hooks people. It's what gets you into the song. It's the thing you remember. And, and oftentimes, as Rockin' in the Free World is an example of this, the subtlety, the, the critique, the, the specifics of the song that are embedded in the verses are, are often overlooked. And so I think what you have are campaigns in the public are listening to music in this very industry-centered way which is how we end up with songs that seem misused in political campaigns. So that's that's the first part of that, is I think it has a lot to do with the way that we listen to popular music. The second part about this, and you see this really front and center with uh, the Brexit vote that just happened, is that politics becomes about um, consumption not about pedagogy there's a if, if you think about really pure democracy in its theoretical state 
early theorists of democracy talked about educating. And you go out and you educate people about the issues so that they can make a well-informed decision. And looking at the campaigns uh, basically in my lifetime, what we see is a real, like nobody's going out there and actually doing the tough work of teaching an electorate about what the issues really are. Um, and so because of this, we have this reversion to the idea of consuming through politics rather than learning through politics. And I think that's where we get to the point where you're using music as you would in the advertising industry to advertise a product, to shape the image of a product. And that particular product is the image of a politician rather than the substance of their campaign or the substance of their ideology. I have a question for both Justin and Matt. For both of you, your work primarily focuses on what types of pre-existing popular songs the candidates use you know, to construct these, I don't know, these sort of utopian American narratives. And Justin, you also mentioned how music is used to sort of smooth over you know, the contradictions between center and periphery in American life. But I also want to mention another trend here. So since 2008, we really have sort of witnessed this sort of democratization of the soundscape, you know, as we have social media platforms, we have playlisting sites like Spotify, you know, video sharing sites like YouTube. And, you know, these really encourage user participation, your know, user invention and, and interactivity, if you will. And in 2015, 2016 alone, at Tracks on the Trail, um, we've documented, you know, thousands of candidate-themed Spotify playlists, tribute videos, newly composed songs, and parodies. And these are all, of course, created, um, you know, just by the general public. So I was hoping you could comment on how the rhetoric of populism has influenced, you know, not only how the candidates use music, but also how the public participates in music during campaign season and how it shapes their roles as creators, not just listeners. Well, I would say there's a, there's a couple things. I mean, first, we would probably want to say what we mean by the rise of populism. Um, I think what we see recently, and this is, I think, the case in the Brexit, uh, as well as in Donald Trump, you see kind of a, what we would call a neo-populist, which is populism as a uh, political logic that is aiming to unify people to make some kind of demand as if is being used as a kind of ready-made political affect. Uh, so that, and I think Justin was on to something when he, he was talking about the way that this is linked to consumerism uh, and a kind of shallow uh, mnemonic, right, where this popular music serves as a kind of a, uh, a hook to the individual subject consuming it. Um, consumer culture has figured out very effectively that one of the best ways to link consumers to their product effectively is to pull them into the production. So we often talk in media studies about prosumer culture, right? Where the consumer is not just the consumer, but also the producer of media content. But what cons uh, advertising and uh, people who produce movies and other things have realized that uh, it very effectively pulls people into identification with something when they're the producers of this. And we've seen uh, essentially, the political campaigns invite people to be a part of their campaigns in this way because once you start being invested in the process, you're uh, not only helping to promote it, but you're also kind of giving it 
a, a kind of the veneer of a populist authenticity, right? It seems to be emanating from the people, not just coming from uh, top down, which has always been the critique of mass culture. So these tribute videos, um, oftentimes they're using a song that has kind of been chosen by the campaigns or at least vetted by the campaigns. And the, the, the video of it that you see with it is the thing that is produced by the people and then the, sometimes they're cleverly edited together. Uh, again, making it seem as what you're seeing is an aggregate of a bunch of people doing things, you know, which in a way is uh, very much what the populist aesthetic and logic is all about. The illusion or, or the appearance of a people unifying under some kind of coherent uh, idea. But in, uh, as Justin said, I think these the identifications are largely superficial along the lines that consumer culture wants them to be superficial. Consumer culture kind of works metonymically, that we displace our identification of one thing onto the next thing. Uh, so pop music depends on this kind of identification. So this month's Katy Perry song, next next month we'll identify with the Taylor Swift song. The month after that, there'll be some new star that'll be effectively occupying that space. And our identification with it just slips on to the next thing. And I think this is what's happening with politics as well. So short-term memory, short-term identification, but this kind of tribute video is a way of pulling people into this process as well. So building on what Matt just said about putting people into the the process of making politics, even if it is at a superficial level. I think when we enter the, the end of the modern era, so when we think about the modern era and democracy, we are looking almost explicitly at the idea of being ruled by elites. Right Again, I'll go back to Edmund Morgan talking about the early American and early British democracies really felt like they were ruled by those among them who were superior. Now, obviously, there's a lot of class, gender, and racial politics that are written into the idea of who are the elites among the people. This breaks down basically when we get into civil rights and when we find that when we start electing black folks and brown folks and women into office, this idea really breaks down because there is this underlying assumption that black folks and women can't be elite, they can't be my boss, that really throws Congress for a serious loop that is yet to recover from. And there's a really great short article in The Atlantic about how infrastructure has really ceased to get done since the diversification of Congress. And the, the author sort of theorizes that there's this lack of trust in between these different groups that are, that are taking seats at the Capitol after the late 1950s. So when you no longer have the rule of the many by the elites, you have the idea that everybody participates, sort of like the critique of blogs, where everybody becomes a journalist and quality control sort of goes out the window when anybody can have an opinion. And so I think the sort of postmodern democracy that we find ourselves in is where everybody wants a seat at the table not as listeners, but as speakers. And it so happens that technology enables this kind of echo chamber. And that the idea of being able to speak as part of the democratic process is a very powerful notion 
And just when that's taking root, you have the internet, you have YouTube and Spotify and all of these other things that enable people to make political music or to politicize their own music by labeling it in that way and then to share it. And I think it's been interesting, some of the studies that have been done with Facebook now that do reinforce the idea of Facebook being a bit of a political echo chamber because you only get postings from people you're connected to and we tend to be connected to people who are like us. So then we end up getting political information from people who think the same way that we do. And I think it's you have this really perfect storm of sort of ideology and technology that come together that give this, like what Matt talks about, is this populist veneer that anybody can participate that enables this to really go into hyperdrive and have, you know, tens of thousands of people making videos and playlists and composing their own songs and putting them up online, even if it's only for people who are already part of that particular partisan group. We're going to take a short break for now, but then we'll be back via Skype with Justin Patch, Matt Jordan, and James DeVille to continue our discussion on populism and the 2016 presidential campaign. just tuning in, we are in the studio via Skype with Justin Patch, Matt Jordan, and James DeVille discussing populism on the 2016 presidential campaign trail. And now Matt has a question for Justin. Hearing Justin's essay, it was, I was drawn by a particular uh, assertion that he made in it, which is uh, taken from the social theorist Jacques Attali, uh, who mentions that popular music has become something like a monologue of power in the contemporary age, that the kind of ubiquity that we hear in popular music reflects uh, a kind of the powerful in society 
kind of deciding what it's going to be. And I think Justin's on to something here. And uh, so I wanted to just get him to reflect on whether the repetitive nature and ubiquitousness of the music that's used in campaigns, and we do see a kind of similarity between 2008, 2012, 2016, uh, whether it's worth thinking about the implications of a kind of monologue of music in a way, a kind of ubiquitousness of the music. So in the same way that classic rock stations uh, will play the same uh, rotation depending on their demographics, say the classic rock, you know, if you tune in any moment, you're going to hear Boston every 15 minutes or a Rush song, uh, you know, it's a very standardized monologue. Or that the top 40 stations play whatever rotation they've been given to plug the same 10 songs, essentially. So do you think that the ubiquity of the campaign music tells us something about a, a similar sameness of, uh, of, uh, of a structure of power in America, as if we could say that there's some kind of power block back there that's using these ready-made songs and the known affect of these, especially like the Neil Young, uh, Rockin' in the Free World, or songs that have been around forever that you know they know what the effect on the audience is going to be. Um, do you think that they're using these to extract something like the consent of the governed? And it, it makes me wonder, just by way of the sociologist Theodore Adorno, who famously wrote a lot of things that were very pessimistic about pop culture, he uh, thought that one of the ways that pop music works is by getting us to think that we're asserting our individualness or our individual choice when we kind of consume one of these channels or or one of these songs but in actuality what we're really doing is we're merely kind of connecting with the latest pop star who serves as the face to a big kind of culture machine out there that's cranking out the hits right so we think we're uh, kind of participating in something that's very human but actually it's very uh, standardized and ubiquitous so do we see something similar now in mass media politics which is using pop music in a similar way to have a kind of ready-made a kind of populist aesthetic, um, and especially I would say in an era when mass media political culture has effectively become a very profitable popular culture. All right, so a lot to unpack here again. So the first thing that comes to mind is that you have the idea of the top down, which is you know famously Theodore Adorno's thing about popular culture is that the powerful basically feeding consumers what they want them to feel and to think and to identify with. And the other half of that sort of social equation is a sort of Stuart Hall, Birmingham school, where he really tries to insist that not all consumers consume alike and not all consumers follow the pathways that producers want them to follow, right? So these, this, these are the two big conflicts with popular music. And what I think politics does with this is that it exploits both of these with equal ability. So in your essay, the Obama's iPod, you bring up uh, Ernesto Laclau's uh, idea of the empty signifier. And the empty signifier is something that anybody can read their story into. And the, the ultimate empty signifier that I can think of for political music is uh, Brooks and Dunn's Only in America. Right. And it's it's a it's three little very country vignettes about the American dream, more or less. Right. And in 2004, George W. Bush uses it. 2008, Barack Obama uses it. And then it's popped back up in 2012 and 2016 as well. And 
that to me is almost the, the, the perfect example of top-down, sideways use of this music that people can identify with in a bunch of different ways. And I think that's what makes popular music popular, is that people can read into it whatever they want. If they want to see themselves in it, if they want to identify with it, then they will. They will absolutely find a way to put themselves into whatever scenario is being put in the song, right? And so that's sort of where I see politics using music. And I think a lot of this comes from the ubiquity of particular types of music to where even if, you know, you think about uh, Bernie Sanders and the demographic that goes to see Bernie Sanders, uh, typically like 18 to 29 are the people that he really is dug in deep with. And somehow, almost all of them know the Simon and Garfunkel song, America, right? Seems a little bit odd that, that a, a, a song that was put out in, what, 1967 or 68 is something that 18 to 29-year-olds would know. And I think that speaks to basically the, the ways in which technology and policy uh, and politics all interact. When we look at you know policy with with um, famously Clear Channel and the idea that you can basically standardize a playlist across the country, and we see the standardization of you know classic rock playlists and pop playlists and country playlists all over the country, and so you have a repetitiveness that builds in affect to where political campaigns are able to just step right in there and give people the semblance of recognition. And if we go back to Aristotle, right, the highest form of beauty is recognition. Well, when somebody recognizes themselves culturally in a political campaign, it's a very powerful thing. That's incredibly powerful. And, and it becomes a self-perpetuating mechanism whereby you have this repetitiveness of popular music that people become attached to and then political campaigns are able to sort of grab onto them and take that sort of affective connection right away. So going back to what you said a moment ago about people having this, you know, people recognizing themselves in the music, but that's not really the case in a lot of ways in terms of the age demographic that you're speaking about in relation to Sanders uh, and some of the kinds of music that he's used on the campaign trail. I mean, he's used Guthrie's This Land is Your Land. He's used Simon and Garfunkel's America. He's used music from girl groups of the 60s. So it's like he's establishing this type of nostalgia in his campaign soundtrack, but that's not really the soundtrack of the primary uh, group that is attending his events. So I'm wondering, you know, what you make of that. I mean, I guess as I see it, songs that were about sort of, you know, rebelling against authority and have sort of themes of, of, of re- revolution and, uh, you know, just general you know, public's discontent that, you know, when that's filtered through the lens of nostalgia, any sort of radical ideology that's in there to a certain extent becomes neutralized. I mean, would you agree with that? I I do agree with the neutralization effect, but what I think we see with Sanders is kind of the brilliance of authenticity, 
if I can contrast Sanders and Obama and Bush with Clinton, is that one of the things that people felt about the latter three that they don't feel about Clinton is that she's authentic, which is weird. I don't know how somebody is not authentic to themselves. But when when Hillary Clinton plays Katy Perry, it seems very contrived because nobody actually believes that Hillary Clinton was rocking out to Katy Perry in her free time, where you believe that George W. Bush listened to Nashville sort of pop radio. You believe that Obama had the blueprint on his iPod. And with Sanders, what you see is that like he is able to find music like the girl groups, like Simon and Garfunkel, like Woody Guthrie, that you believe that he likes. Obviously, like he recorded some of Woody Guthrie songs on his terrible spoken word CD. But... It wasn't terrible. <laughs> <laughs> we'll agree you... to disagree. Go on. Yes. You, but you believe that he actually likes these songs. But he's picking songs that younger folks recognize. So it's like you get the best of both worlds. You get a song that your demographic recognizes and has an affective connection to many of them through their parents. Like um, my students this year, my freshmen, we we had a class about the 2016 election and they knew all these old songs that Sanders would play. And all of them said, you know, that stuff my mom and dad listened to, or in some cases that stuff my grandparents listened to. Right. So you have this sort of built in affective connection with that. And the added benefit that Sanders seems authentic in this particular usage. Right. And I do think that's a really important point to mention. Um, you know, in 2008, you know, Hillary Clinton really was lambasted in the press for exactly what you're talking about, this sort of musical pandering, um, you know, this idea that, you know, I think candidates pick a certain playlist because they want to cater to the interests of their public. But, you know, if there's that suspicion that the candidate themselves really has no interest or sort of no cultural knowledge uh, of that music, uh, they are often criticized for it. And we saw it in that famous Bernie versus Hillary meme where, uh, you know, it will say something like jazz or it would say Radiohead. And, you know, Bernie Sanders would give a very sort of thoughtful response that, you know, displays a certain depth of knowledge, whereas Hillary Clinton's answer would be more simplistic, more what people would expect to hear. So you also see sort of these accusations of pandering sort of working themselves out in other media as well. So I think you're you're absolutely right about that, that it's certainly authenticity in terms of speaking to a certain demographic, but that also sort of promoting a certain uh, authentic construction of the self uh, certainly weighs in. And it does seem Clinton seems to be criticized uh, more so uh, than than other candidates for, for this exact thing. Yeah, I mean, and, and Matt has a really beautiful passage in his article on Obama's iPod about the cultural identification with the candidate. I mean, Matt, if you want to expand a little bit on this one. I, I would uh, I would just add, uh, to th was, you know, thinking about uh, Dana talking about the nostalgia factor. And I think this nostalgia is one of the ways in which populist identification works. I'll just ask you to kind of think about the structural similarities in this sense with Donald Trump, who is arguing for a different type of, of populism. So we have the 
Sanders populism, which is this heterogeneous populism of inclusion of all types of different people. And we have the Trump homogenous populism, where the America as a homogenous white people place is threatened by some kind of internal problem. So it's a negative populism that's kind of drawing people together to protect America. But both of them seem to have a nostalgia in it. So, uh, you know, think about Trump's uh, slogan that he puts on his uh, hats, make America great again, right? It's a perfect nostalgia for an empty signifier, uh, America, and an un a time of unreflected fullness, right? Um, when America was great. Uh, Bernie Sanders, I think, is similarly trying to return America to a time when things were well. But I think you, if you think about their different times, I think Trump's is... Uh, pre-civil rights America, pre-political correctness America, where white people could be white people and it would just okay. And I think Bernie Sanders's time of nostalgia is for the civil rights era, right? This is a part of his authenticity is that he hasn't changed since he got arrested for sitting in with the civil rights marches. So both are, are kind of animating a certain type of nostalgic identification with it that's tied to their authenticity. Trump, no matter what you can say about him, is he has no filter, right? He just, he's authentically braggadocio. He's authentically boorish. And Sanders, as the copy on him is, it's always, he, he doesn't change, right? He's the same as he's always been. And I think you're right to say that the problem that Hillary Clinton is having creating a populist uh, identification with her is that she seemingly changes every time there's a new focus group demographic that comes out. So we don't know what her grounding is in the same way as those other two. So she can't really link to the people in that way. But I think this is why she's not running a populist campaign. She's running as a technocrat. She's running as somebody who's going to offer rational solutions in a way. And the, you know, the, what remains to be seen is whether that will be able to create enough of an identification with people. I mean, the identification she has with people right now is She's going to protect them from the boogeyman, you know, from Trump. What about uh, Sanders' apparent inability to connect with people of his own age group? Um, is there, uh, am I correct in, in reading it that way? And then what is the reason for that, do you think? I would say it has something to do with the fact that people of his own age remember the civil rights time as maybe not so great, whereas the younger generation, when they hear the word kind of revolution there it's an empty signifier to them they don't remember this the civil turmoil that was caused during that time so it's easier i think for them to identify with this turning the, the clock back to that time whereas i i think his own generation has lost that love and feeling for that time or at least fewer of them seem to have it i mean if you look at baby boomer identification a lot of them started very left and are no longer very left so uh, i think that's the trouble he's having He's asking for a, a generation that, you know, in terms of their consumptive pattern, seems to gravitate toward, towards things that are safe. They're more risk averse. He's asking them to embrace the idea of revolution. And, and from a marketing standpoint, uh, that doesn't work. We need to close here, but this has all been really fascinating. And we truly appreciate you sharing your insight with Tracks on the Trail. Keep an eye out for Justin's article on our website. Once again, I would like to thank Justin Patch, Adjunct Assistant Professor of Music at Vassar College, Matthew Jordan, Associate Professor in the Department of Film, Video, and Media Studies at Penn State University, and James DeVille, Professor of Music at Carleton University and co-editor of Tracks on the Trail, for joining us in the studio today via Skype.
This is Dana Gorzolani-Mostak for Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College.